0: Well, I think sometimes horror helps us to process the real nightmares out there. And I think you you see this in, in sort of unhealthy way with conspiracies and conspiracy theories. I think it is kind of like we're talking about the vastness of the universe. It is terrifying. It is more terrifying to me to think about how absolutely depraved people can be to each other and the horrible things they can do to each other than to think there's you know some non-human monster out there you know if if there's a non-human monster murdering young girls we can all band together and go hunt that monster down and kill it and now we have we have ended the we we've done something wonderful together We've overcome a great difficulty and we've ended its scourge. It will no no longer trouble our community, right? Unfortunately, in the real world, you can't do that because it's not just one monster. It's many and they're people and they often hide in plain sight. So I often think that horror helps us to sort of conceptualize that and deal with that and experience the bad things that can happen in life from a safe vantage point. You know, watching, watching horror on, on your television screen and experiencing it that way is, is much better than watching the news, frankly. Right. <laughs> i found yeah, the news yeah. to be far more terrifying than, than real life horror. And I, and I often say that to people. It, it always surprises me. We do these October episodes and, and they're really just true crime, but they've got like a, they'll have like a little hint of, of whatever. And people are like, oh, I can't listen to that. That's scary. And I think to myself, God. That's
1: so funny. I find them less <laughs> yeah. scary.
0: It's like all year round, we're talking about real terror. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's Brett Talley, an author of several best selling novels and anthologies, including he who walks in the shadows, that which should not be, and the fiddle is the devil's instrument. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. This is the second of two episodes with Brett. The first was released yesterday, on October 30th, and it explores similar issues with a focus on where many of our horror stories and myths come from, how they've been used over time to explain things that we cannot always face head on, and to help do things like make sure children go to sleep at night. We talk in that episode a lot about Stephen King and the power of horror stories to give us deeper meaning, and authors like H.P. Lovecraft, whose nihilistic cosmic horror helps us question the meaning of life. We also touch on how some stories from the world of horror and science fiction helped in a positive way to shape our values. If you've not listened to that episode, I encourage you to do so. Brett has been twice nominated for the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement, the top award for horror writing presented annually by the Horror Writers Association. The works of writers are nominated for the Bram Stoker Award, which is named after the Irish Victorian era Gothic fiction writer who is the author of Dracula. By juries and members of the Horror Writers Association, that which should not be was Brett's first novel, and it was published in two thousand and eleven. In addition to being nominated for the Bram Stoker Award for a writer's first novel, it was a semi-finalist for the Goodreads Choice Awards and the winner of the Journal Stone Horror Writing Contest. That which should not be takes readers on a journey to Misotonic University, a fictional school with a whispered reputation for being connected to the occult and supernatural, where a professor and a student search a nearby village for a book that's believed to control all the non-human forces that rule the earth. The pair bring the book back to Missatonic University, opening a gate into the netherworld. Brett was also nominated for a 2014 anthology, Limbus, Inc., book two, that he edited. In the book, five masters of horror, fantasy, and science fiction writing take readers into a world of time travel, human sacrifice, intergalactic beings, and more. Brett is also the author of several true ghost stories and a nonfiction book called Haunted Tuscaloosa, which explores the paranormal in an Alabama town from a now shuttered local insane asylum, an Annabelle mansion said to be haunted by ghosts, to cemeteries where Confederate soldiers are still said to march, and ghost stories from the University of Alabama grounds, Brett is an attorney, and his interests include horror, science fiction, the paranormal, and the who done it and w- what's done it uh, that all leave us wondering. He's the host also of The Prosecutor's Podcast, where he and his co-host, Alice LaCour, tackle well-known and less well-known true crime cases. But they also tackle some mysteries, some flat-out hard-to-explain events. Over the years, they've written about Dyatlov Pass, an incident where nine Soviet hikers died under mysterious circumstances in the Ural Mountains. And, also from Russia, the 1993 Kamar Dabain incident, where six hikers disappeared in the mountains near the enormous Lake Bacal in southern Siberia. They've covered whether the moon is hollow, the Salem witch trials, the mystery of whether the Soviets lost cosmonauts in space, and the story of Aldonfo Constantes, who surely believed he could use human sacrifice and magic to move cocaine into the United States from Mexico. Alice calls Brett a true renaissance man, and I happen to agree. The Prosecutor's Podcast was the 2023 winner of the People's Choice Creator of the Year Award at CrimeCon. This October, Brett and Alice have told weeks of real-life horror stories related to all sorts of things from the 1987 story of Ruthie May McCoy, the chilling story of the murder of a woman, through people breaking through her medicine cabinet that led to the movie Candyman, and what Brett and Alice called the man who killed Halloween, the 1974 case, Ryan Clark O'Brien, who killed his eight-year-old son, Timothy, by lacing his pixie sticks with potassium cyanide. Today, we're gonna continue our discussion of the paranormal, horror, science fiction, and all the mysterious and spooky stuff both in fiction and in reality. I was going to ask you about something different because I'm sitting here right now wearing a Prosecutors Podcast Diet Love Pass sweatshirt that is quite comfy, by the way. Um, (laughs) The... But one of the things that I'm curious about that, like, it actually, I I don't know if I've told you this, I think what actually hooked me on your podcast were the first thing I was exposed to was some of your coverage of current cases. And, you know, with the podcast, you hear one episode, I think I had been searching for a certain topic, came across it, listened. But along the way, in my early listening, I tripped across some of your mysteries that aren't traditionally a true crime. And one is Diat Love Pass, which is now, at least this year, you know, I went on vacation and that was my binge on my vacation. But, you know, could you tell us this, some of those stories like Diat Love Pass, Kuiper Dubain, why you guys decided to take on these stories? I, I I feel like you have a fascination with mysteries, which is kind of funny to me because you are the person who said – during your coverage of the Adnan Saeed case, that if it takes two conspiracies for it to be true, you don't believe it. But I'm like, is there some kind of attraction to you to things that truly just can't be explained because so much can be
0: I would like to think I'm the best kind of skeptic because I wanna look at all these things critically, but I really wanna find a true mystery. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: You're you Fox know. Mulder. You're Fox exactly. Mulder. The exactly. truth is like, out there. I yeah. wanna believe I want to trust believe.
0: no one. <laughs> exactly. I wanna believe. And my thing I do not the thing I don't want to believe I don't want the world to be boring. I really don't. I mean, a boring world is boring, right? Yes, so that? true. So I want there to be mysteries, you know, I want to believe in paranormal things, you know, I want there to be unexplainable things that, you know, can't just be explained by two atoms colliding in the right way. Right? right. And so what always fascinated me, and one of the reasons I always liked horror and sort of a spin-off of that are mysteries, unsolved mysteries. Going back, you talk about another thing from the 80s that shapes you, the old Robert Stack, unsolved mysteries. Definitely. Yeah,
1: the show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And and my favorite part of the, I mean, I enjoyed the crime parts of those, but my favorite parts were always, they'd always stick like, you know, an alien abduction or a, a haunting or a poltergeist or something in there. There would always be one story that was like that. And the, so I, I called them the Twilight Zone episodes. There you go. The Twilight Zone <laughs> episodes, exactly. And at some point I had, you know, I'd written the books, done the horror thing. And I was, it one not that I was tired of horror, but I was kind of looking for a little, something that was a little bit different. I think I read like the lost city of Z, which is a great book. If you haven't read it, it's about search for a lost city and, and someone who disappeared looking for it. And sort of what happened to them? Where'd they go? You know? And that sort of sparked my interest in this, this whole sort of mysterious thing. And I had been for a long time. I don't know if you, do you remember the old, I don't know if it's old anymore. I mean, I guess it's old, crack.com. Do you ever go to crack.com? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I used to love crack.com. I still, I assume they're still going, but, but they're like a listicle site for those of you who don't know. And, and they would always have like five, you know, most inexplicable mysteries and there would be an article on them when you read them. And I always enjoyed that. And I remember one time... I didn't know I people them. actually went to that site. I always end up accidentally hitting the
1: ads to it. <laughs> I think so- that's how
0: I ended up there initially. <laughs> You're right. Their advertising's great because <laughs> it tricks you into going there, right? And so then I was like, oh, so I'll start reading this stuff. And there was one article that was like five mysteries with obvious explanations. And that was where I learned about Love Pass. And it was... Dyatlov Pass, which is for those of you who don't know, is a place in the Urals in Russia where in 1959 nine hikers they went up there on a it was it wasn't I'm not going to call it routine, it was a difficult hike but they were highly experienced, highly skilled, really great leader and they died in just incredibly mysterious circumstances. Basically, they don't show up, they don't show up at home. People come looking for them, they find their tent, it's cut from the inside. But all their stuff is still in there, their shoes and their clothes. They see footprints in the sand and, or in the snow, and they're literally footprints because they're not wearing shoes. But maybe a couple of them are wearing shoes and they're leading off down the hill away from the tent, which is safety, obviously. And it's super cold. I mean, we're talking about like minus 20 degrees. Follow them down and they find all these these people dead in, in very all of them in very different circumstances. And so they all died at different times and different places and different ways. And it's too much to go over in less than, I think six episodes. So- <laughs> <laughs> five,
1: five.
0: I think. Five episodes. Right, yeah. Man, if we did it now, it'd be, it'd be 10 easy. But <laughs> it, and in the crack.com article was like, Oh, it's paradoxical in dressing. They just got cold, took their clothes off and died. And I was like, it doesn't seem right. And so then I ended up down the rabbit hole on that and just got obsessed with it. So when we did the podcast, I was like, I, I don't want it just to be true crime. Love true crime. One of the reasons I like true crime is the mysteries. Most of the cases we do are unsolved. Right. We like the unsolved ones. I mean, We do solved ones too. But to me, the ones that are the most fun are when you don't know why it happened or who did it and sort of trying to untangle all that. Yep. And when we decided to do that, it was like, we are going to include some of these mysteries. So Diatlov Pass is one of them, the Flannan Isles Lighthouse. Yes. Had three, light, three lighthouse keepers who disappear. And when the relief ship shows up, they find everything's pretty much in order. And, you know, the the coat's hanging from the things and the door's closed and everything. is like, where do these people go? And it's become a, a great mystery. The Mary Celeste, which is a ship that was found sailing across the ocean, seemingly perfectly fine, but with no crew. The entire crew and the captain are gone. Like What happened to it? And that's one I remember learning about in grade school, and that's a really famous one. Sorry. And then the the Khmer-Dabin, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, but is another group of hikers in Russia who go up a mountain and then all but one die. And because the one didn't die, we know the story, and the story is so much stranger than you would have imagined because they're literally just – walking up this mountain and all of a sudden everyone but her start vomiting blood and just all sort of drop dead and she runs off into the woods and survives How, what happened there who knows right right what is that those kind of mysteries i love those mysteries and i love looking into them and i like sharing them with people and seeing you know what do you think about this is this as mysterious to you do you have an obvious answer i mean that's that's the thing i think i probably enjoy the most about the podcast
1: yeah, and because I, I do see the connection between the unsolved cases. Did you have to sell Alice on the idea of, of doing ones like that, boss, or was she like down for that?
0: Man, Alice, you know, she's down. She's down for, for doing anything on the podcast. She's great. You don't have to twist her arm. I mean, the fact that she'll do all the October episodes with me. She just I'm talking about somebody who does not like horror at all, which is kind of <laughs> wild for somebody who does true crime. But the thing is, I we use the same approach. I mean, we look at the evidence, we try and put out a timeline, we try and follow exactly what happened, eliminate the wilder conspiracy theories, though in some of those cases, the conspiracy theories seem to be the most likely ones. Yeah. And, yeah. And and also that's a little different because like you were saying, I mean, typically when we look at the true crime cases, I mean, look, usually it's it's simple. Usually what actually happened in any true crime case is pretty straightforward and simple. It's not going to be complicated. It's not going to have a lot of conspiracies. If you can eliminate all that, you'll see the truth. And that's that's fun, and I like doing that. And I like I like unraveling things for people and, and using Alice and my experience to do so. But I still really love those mysteries, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I always found myself drawn back to them.
1: Well, it's kind of to your point that you made before. It would really suck if the world is boring and while Oxum's razor, like the simplest, the thing that requires the simplest or the the least amount of sort of jumps or conclusions is a is a is a powerful tool to use, it gets kind of boring after a while you know I I listen to a lot of like uh, you know true crime cases that are that people debate on Reddit and they're talking about and I find myself consuming all the information very often and being like, Well, I know you have 19 theories, but this is pretty simple. The husband did it, right? Like, so, (laughs) I mean, like, it would be a boring world if everything involved Oxum's razor. Yeah. And look, I mean, sometimes
0: the husband doesn't do it, right? Occasionally, occasionally. (laughs) But I just, I just feel like, and we talk about this sometimes, you know, people talk about, the behavioral analysis unit and they're, mm-hmm. you know, they, they make television shows about it and everybody loves behavioral analysis and they just think it's the most amazing thing in the world. But where do they start? What's the first thing they do? Stats. They just look at statistics. Yeah. Yep. They look at yeah, statistics. Stats. Who's okay. the victim? You know, how old is she? Cause unfortunately it's usually a woman. How old is she? What race is she? Is she married? Does she have a boyfriend? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Those okay well then it's has uh, gotta it's rule those out Year old ex-boyfriend is, is <laughs> right? most likely the person who did it and maybe he didn't but that's sort of where you start from and i and i always kind of think one weird thing people do in true crime sometimes is they try and start from a position of i am going to be completely unbiased and just start as if anything's possible and it's like that's actually probably not the best place to start, <laughs> right? That would be like throwing out
1: all the scientific evidence that we have and trying and coming up with some new scientific idea. That y- you really want to start with the knowledge, like ju- our friend Julia Callie, who used to work in the behavioral analysis unit, and who I'm going to make a plug for her really cool podcast, The Consult, which should be coming out again any minute now, since this is Halloween, but one of the things that she told me that i that i really i really learned from talking to her is you know that point that you were making about looking at statistics and going through the data and looking at the most common solutions allows you to eliminate possibilities really eliminate possibilities but then when you get to a point where you've eliminated all the possibilities you have sort of like that extraordinary evidence that calls for something extraordinary happened here like a serial killer for example or the husband didn't do it or and and those are to me those are yeah, going back to your point about unsolved mysteries those are do you remember the tv show without a trace <laughs> you, yeah like there's a reason why it's fascinating when it can't simply be, be explained um yeah and i and it's it's just interesting to me that people will jump to the mystery and i think we often will without eliminating the obvious ones if that makes sense maybe it is
0: usually usually even if it seems mysterious it's just because we're missing something and if we saw the thing that we were missing we'd be like oh of course right oh i didn't think about that right right you know like I always, one of the most mysterious cases we ever did was and I forget his name. Um, it was the guy, the Super Bowl, and he was he was supposed to watch the Super Bowl. He was a big fan of the Dallas Cowboys, and they were playing the Super Bowl. And his wife had gone off to um, he's Stable the one Lewis. who
1: disappeared who showed up in the
0: Northwest, right? So he yeah. lives in Texas. He he sets or he he. Turns on the record function manually of his VCR, makes himself a sandwich. Then his wife comes home a couple of days later, sandwich is sitting on the table. The Super Bowl is recorded. He's nowhere to be seen. Turns out the next day, he was the victim of a hit and run outside of like Tacoma, Washington. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's completely inexplicable. How in the world? Did that happen? Why was he up there? Who knows? Right. And you just, but you feel like, as inexplicable as it is, if we just knew one more piece of information, maybe all of a sudden everything would fall into place. But for now, it's completely inexplicable. And is that the one
1: where he had like, there was supposed to be a meeting he was supposed to go to downtown and like some, there were, but there was clearly something in the middle, some tiny piece. That we were missing, (laughs) yeah.
0: It's like on Saturday he goes and and prices a basketball goal for his daughter. On Sunday he starts to watch the Super Bowl. On Monday he's hit by a car two thousand miles away.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're definitely missing something there. But so so there so in a weird way it sounds like the it comes from, you know, like you're able to sort of like logically work yourself through. Well, I'll just say what I said about you. I'm like, this guy is so smart. <laughs> He's able to logically solve a lot of puzzles that we can't. So I bet it is wonderful for him when he finds a puzzle he can't solve.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I love it. I mean, yeah. I just love I love inexplicable mysteries. I really do. And I really try and not like, look, you know, we, we did the whole Moon is Hollow episode. I think it'd be awesome if the moon was hollow. You talk about an interesting development, <laughs> but unfortunately, it's probably not right. It doesn't but have always a spacecraft. In the it probably it. No, is not. No, you don't spacecraft. think that's it? Oh, boo! I'm I'm saying probably. I'm leaving out. <laughs> there might be a chance. We haven't checked. <laughs> we haven't looked yet. We need to drill down in there and see.
1: But the um, yeah, and I think that that it kind of uh, probably one of the things for me, I guess, I, you know, like. I have always thinking about the writing and thinking about your books, which I've read several of, I'm like finishing the last of of the readings right now, your haunted Tuscaloosa book. But one of the things that's always been interesting to me about writing as somebody who comes from the nonfiction side, who originally for me, my first love was fiction, but I found that I think as I wrote, there were two things that got in my way. One, I couldn't write realistic dialogue. And two, I always felt like real life was so crazy, I couldn't make this up. So I naturally gravitated toward nonfiction. I've tried my hand at writing on occasion fiction, but I've never been satisfied with it in the same way that I am with with, with my nonfiction writing. So it's amazing to me when I read something like your books, where I'm reading dialogue and I'm reading writing that feels as real as a nonfiction book, but then you throw another layer on top of it. And it's even weirder to me that I'm reading this thing that's about the supernatural, or it's about horror, things I don't, know existed but that you've written them and you and other writers can write them in a way that they feel so realistic it almost seems insurmountable to me as a non-fiction writer i'm just curious about that whole process behind that
0: well i think i think the first thing you have to like you know we always talk about how readers have to suspend their disbelief i think writers have to suspend their disbelief too like you have to believe it first Mm. and. You and if you believe it and you accept that this is this is the real world that you're inventing, then it feels less like making it up and more like you're just sort of telling a real story, right? Mm. Does that make sense? I don't yeah. Know sense.
1: Yeah, but. absolutely. Like the it's so you're so ingrained in the story that you're able to say, well, this is what the character would do in this situation, as opposed to because you feel it. You're in it. You're in the middle of
0: the universe. And I think, no, I think that's 100% right. And I think the way I always wrote things, and different people, everybody's different. You know how it is. Everybody's different in the way they do things. But things like dialogue, you know, if you can sort of, for me, it was always if I could imagine these two people having this conversation, like what would they say? What Would they actually, you know, how would they actually talk? And obviously you don't want it to be exactly like they would talk because that's boring too. That's the weird thing about <laughs> realistic dialogue is it can't be too realistic or nobody want to read it. <laughs> so you right. have this very fine line, you know, it's sort of like Facebook reality, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it, yes. So that's that what you want.
1: Fiction writing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh yeah. And I mean, for me, for me, the hardest part, I don't think I'm that creative. So for me, the coming up with the ideas was always a hard part. Like, What in the world is the story going to be about? And I'm always amazed by people. You know, Stephen King, it's like, if you come up with an idea and you're like, oh, wow, I have the most original idea ever. Stephen King has absolutely written a short story about it. It's kind of like The Simpsons. You know, The Simpsons have covered everything at this point. Yes, right. Stephen
1: right.
0: Stephen King's written every story. You know, in every story is ever going to be written, so just ignore that fact and write your own thing anyway. <laughs> right,
1: right, right. Well, and that's also a part of it. Like I think all of these different things, to your point, sort of have built on each other. You know, even before Dracula, but certainly the Victorian area era pushing forward. The um, it, it, when you are writing something like that, like um, you know, one of your one of your horror pieces. Are you are do you find yourself kind of living in that world? Do you become so immersed in it at times? Like I've always wondered what that what that feels like for a like I always think of something like the book Gone Girl, and I'm like, were you losing was that person losing their mind when they <laughs> read that one? Or which by the way should be counted as a horror <laughs> book. Yeah. You know, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's one of those real life nightmares. But, like, do you immerse yourself in it completely, or how does that work?
0: So I'm sure, once again, different people are different ways, but I do. It's one reason that since we've started the podcast, I really haven't done a whole lot of writing, because writing for me is one of those things that when I'm doing it, it's basically all I want to do. You know, like, if if I am writing, when I wrote that first book, when I wrote That Which Should Not Be, which is still my favorite of all of them, I just, I loved writing that book so much. And it was just, it was a joy to be able to get away from, I would cancel things with friends. You know, I would like to, do whatever to get home and be able to sit down and write that book. Because in my mind all day, all I'd been thinking about is sort of the next scene and how I'm going to write it and what's going to happen next. And 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 I think that's probably why it is it is the best of them, because it was just it was really a passion project, right? I mean, I was passionate about it and totally into it and, you know, doing all the research about the locations and, and, you know, what kind of matches that they use back then. Do they have lighters back then? I don't even know. Like all that stuff. Cause it's, it's written, it's set you know 150 years ago or so and trying and, and all that stuff. It was just, I just loved doing it and it was, and I was completely into it. So for me, yes, it's, it is just completely immersive. I can't imagine writing some, some of the stuff. My, my books are horror, but I would call them sort of joyous joyous horror, horror going back to Pet Cemetery, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the emotional toil and the emotional toll mm. that that would take on you to mm. do that every day to sit down and write that book. I mean, it must have just ripped out part of his soul, which is probably one reason it's so good. Right. But yes, to me, you can't, and I'm not, and I'm going to say you can't, even though I recognize, as I said, everybody's different. But for me, you can't really write here or there. Like it just it it grabs you, and just and once it gets you, you can't you can't get out of it.
1: What the story of that which should not be, which is the first story. Tell us a little bit about the
0: story and the inspiration for it. So I I didn't think I could write a book. Mm. I, I didn't think I was. I had written a lot of short stuff and sort of short horror. And I always found writing short stories to be really hard. I don't know why, but it just seemed like so hard. And I was like, man, if it's this hard to write a 1,500-word thing, writing a 100,000-word thing must just be impossible. But at some point, I decided I was going to do it. I had a friend who was an incredible writer. And she she was like – she wanted to work on a book, which – I think she's still working on it. One day <laughs> it's gonna be amazing. Everybody's gonna be blown away by it. Cause I've read part of it. And it's, it's incredible. But I was like, I had trying to encourage her because I had read the first part of it. And I was like, this is amazing. You gotta write the rest of this. And so I was like, let's we'll have a race. <laughs> we'll see who can write a book first. And that was the whole thing. It was gonna be a race, and I was just doing it to encourage her. But then I came up with a story, which basically it's It's four stories with sort of an overarching story, tying them all together. And I'd always wanted to write something about the Wendigo. I'm fascinated by the Wendigo. I think it's one of the most interesting legends, Native American legends there is. Just really messes with your brain to think about it. And I'd always wanted to write something about that. And so basically, I was like, well, I was going to write a Wendigo story. So I'm going to have a Wendigo story. That's going to be my first one. And then I had to come up with sort of what is what is what is everybody's motivation here? You know, and then I essentially just wrote like a paragraph for each of the stories and a couple sentences for the overarching story. And that was my guide, basically. And then everything else, like I said, I'm not very creative. So once I had the ideas, everything else was just fleshing it out. And then it became easy because I find. I find it really easy to be creative once you have the basic idea, because then you're just reacting to what's happening in this world you've created, right? And the, is the Wendigo, thing?
1: isn't the Wendigo the, it's the Native American one where it sort of like invokes sort of, I think, what is it? Feelings of like greed, hunger, the need to right. cannibalize, that kind of stuff like that. And right. But it's it, it's like a human, but not real. It's like humanoid, right? And ice cold and all this other wild stuff.
0: And it can possess people. Yes, that's right. That's right. And it, and so people have claimed to oh, have Oh, yeah, under, the psychosis. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wendigo psychosis. Exactly. To have been under the effect of the Wendigo when they did horrible things and murder people and cannibalize them. And so taking that idea and sort of, you know turning it into a story of these men who are going off into the wilderness. And one by one, they start disappearing. Disappearing, (laughs) right. And, you know, and then tying it all back together because my idea, the central idea of this was in, in the sort of everything that I've ever written, the central idea has been that in legend, there are truths in every legend. Right. Mm. And so, It was imagine sort of a Lovecraftian conception of the universe is true. Well, if that's true, then everything that you've ever heard, every legend you've ever heard, everything you've ever believed is really just a way. It's kind of like we were talking about the very beginning. It's just a way for you to conceptualize something you can't otherwise understand. Mm. So, you know, the Wendigo is actually a one of these sort of Lovecraftian entities. Right. And. A lot of the things that are happening, you know, there, there are sort of, you know, there, there's, there's one where you think they're going to be vampires, but there aren't right. (laughs) These various other things. And they all tie in to this notion of this sort of Lovecraftian idea. And then the overarching story, of course, ties them all together in that and brings in sort of all this lore from different places and, and stories from various people. And, And I just love that stuff. And I love incorporating all that historical stuff into the horror. And also, I talked about Haunted Tuscaloosa, same thing. Like, the more history you can get into it, to me, as someone who loves history, the better it is.
1: Yeah, that was interesting. You were saying, what kind of matches do they have around that time? That, you know, Haunted Tuscaloosa is a, a really good one because it's almost like a different genre of sort of like, real life places with their own ghost stories and other stories. How did you how did you end up into those kind of stories? I remember reading somewhere, where did I, I I may have read it in the Washington Post or Newsweek or somewhere. Oh actually both but that you were a part of a paranormal research group in Tuscaloosa. You are a man of many things.
0: <laughs> so it's funny that all the way that happened so I was in Tuscaloosa, and that's when I was writing that which should not be. One of the stories you may recall takes place in a old insane asylum. Yes. And yes. Tuscaloosa, for whatever reason, and you know, I'm sure many of our opposing football fans would get a kick out of this, has more insane asylums than you would think. <laughs> really? it became yes, <laughs> in the in the mid eighteen hundreds, it became sort of a place, a very sort of forward thinking area for mental health research. Ah. So Bryce Hospital opens in Tuscaloosa. It's one of the old Kirkbride style approaches to mental health Mm -hmm. and became sort of a center for that sort of thing. So you had Bryce, then you had uh, Partlow, which was for uh, youth, youth with severe mental illness. You have, I, I forget the name of it, but there is still to this day a basically hospital for the for the criminally insane. So a prison, but a prison hospital for the criminally insane. There is a another place that the Jemison Center, which was a work, it was like a work release, work release is not the right word, but it was a place that people could go who who had mental illnesses, maybe had developmental difficulties, and they could learn to work and that sort of Kinda thing. Kind of like a vocational outpatient kind exactly. of transition, transition. So you so you had all these places, but then as the money dried up and sort of we got away from the idea of institutionalizing people, they closed and they became abandoned and they became the center for all sorts of ghost stories, right? And actually, the Jemison Center we write about in Haunted Tuscaloosa. But I always, I was writing this book and I was going to have an insane asylum and I thought I should go there and see what it looks like. <laughs>
1: oh, that's that will be
0: That will be useful sort of research for this but the problem is i'm an inveterate rule follower <laughs> and i didn't want to trespass at the place right because people at alabama would go there all the time and like break in and like scare themselves but i didn't want to trespass was it at the place. empty was it abandoned at it's point? abandoned it's been abandoned for a long time okay oh, they're fascinating um, that Kirk Bride
1: building model that during that whole era i think it was like probably until the 1880s but uh I think maybe there's one hospital system that still has it, McLean up in um Belmont, Massachusetts. But you'll laugh at this. I have friends who recently moved into a condo, into one of those old beautiful Kirkbide hospitals that's now been converted into <laughs> converted into condos.
0: Yeah, and that was that was probably at the um the one in, just outside of Boston. Yep. Yeah um Oh, God, I can't believe I can't. It's actually that that place was the inspiration for the Arkham Asylum in Batman. Ah, Uh, I didn't know that. It was also the inspiration for Arkham Asylum in Lovecraft, which is where the name comes from for Batman. It is the. um, Oh, God, what is the name of that place? And if you've seen Session Nine, it's the (laughs) it is the uh, insane asylum where Session Nine was filmed. Tell me about Session Nine there.
1: I've heard session, people say
0: it's scary. Session nine is scary. It's a fantastic movie. And basically oh, it's the Danvers.
1: It's Danvers State. Danvers, Hospital. That's, that's the one. Danvers
0: yep. State Hospital. Yep. Session nine is set in Danvers and it's as they're renovating it, they're going to tear down. It's so funny because exact what's happening in session nine happened in real life. They had to go in, they had to take about, out all the asbestos, all that stuff, clear it all out. Then they tore down a bunch of it, and then they converted the rest of it into condominiums.
1: Haven't they seen Poltergeist?
0: Exactly. (laughs) I mean, the whole thing is just... I mean, it's a beautiful building. It sits up on a hill. It's like... It is really creepy. It's inspired so many things. And that's sort of what I was thinking. I was thinking about that exact thing when I wanted to go look at this place. So I get on YouTube... Trying to see their videos. I can just watch videos. And one of the videos was for this group, this Tuscaloosa paranormal research group. And they apparently mm. went there all the time. So I was like, okay, I'm going to join these people and join this group, and then I'll get to go. And I joined, and I was with them for two years. And we did so many fun things, went so many places, never oh. went there. <laughs> that was the one place that was the one we place never that went. went. But that's how I ended up being a part of that
1: yeah those places are so fascinating that i i was actually wrong because there's one other place that definitely still fits that model and that's saint elizabeths have you ever been there in washington no. oh it's so fascinating because not only does it have those beautiful buildings but like a lot of those kirkbridge models even though they had these beautiful grounds they were all connected to underground by tunnels so you right. walked in these creepy tunnels and uh, like the one, ones at St. Elizabeth's are so unbelievably creepy because you can fit like two people in them and the nurses and the doctors all travel through them to the different buildings. But like if, you, if there were a patient in there who was dangerous, you would not get out of that tunnel. So, I mean, they were they're great horror settings. I'll put it that way.
0: Yeah, they're fantastic, and and the whole idea was you you made them beautiful because they thought a beautiful setting will help the mind, right? So that's why they made them, they built them like that. And if you've ever seen them, I mean, they're just gorgeous. The Bryce Hospital is actually on the University of Alabama campus, mm. and they have now purchased that whole facility and converted it into like these beautiful office buildings. Basically, they're now in okay. that building. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm interested in all that stuff. I, that that history is a fascinating history and And you're right it is it is ripe for horror and and you see that a lot, and there's a reason it works because there is something inherently there's a reality there yeah the the reality the the reality of it makes it more scary
1: yes yes yes, and it's probably on some levels just having been in some of those places it's a more the horror is probably more palatable than some of the sad horror that actually exists there so the the that led to the sort of interest in ghosts and the tell me about the ghost stories
0: so i actually i wrote the book with a buddy of mine who was a member i think still is a member of Tusley's paranormal research ah. and basically the history press was doing those books Basically, all over the South, they had people who were writing the ghost story books of of every little area and they had reached out to him to see if he wanted to do one about Tuscaloosa. And he reached out to me and basically he said he has all the research. He can do all the research. He knows everything about these places, but he he wasn't a great writer and he wanted to know if I would write it. So basically, we worked together. And my thought on it was I want this to basically be a history book with ghost stories. The ghost stories are the hook. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and we'll tell you the ghost stories. I'm going to tell you a history story
0: along the way. <laughs> but really, I'm going to tell you about the history of all this place. You're going to learn so much about the history of this area and this place and what went on there. And then we'll also include the ghost stories. And some of the ghost stories are much more, you know, full throated than others. I mean, some of them were just places I wanted to talk about. And there's a little bit of a ghost story. And some of them are legitimately regarded as being haunted and are places that we went, places that we did investigations in. I mean, it was, that was that two years when I was writing that book and doing that was probably some of the most fun that I've had in my entire sort of post law school career.
1: Tell me about what was like and what are some of the, the, uh, the things that stuck out to you? There were almost what, 20, I think I counted a little short of 20 different places in Tuscaloosa that you identified and read about.
0: And we divided it between the university and, and the city. So the university and both are very steeped in history. Tuscaloosa has been around. Well, it's been around ever since it was a Native American camp when DeSoto arrived. And Chief Tuscaloosa is the reason that the city is named what it is. So it has a lot of history throughout the, the founding period and the pre-Civil War period, the Antebellum South. Civil War period, post-Civil War, Reconstruction. I mean, all of it has happened in Tuscaloosa. You've seen it sort of go through. So there was a lot on the university side. In particular, University of Alabama was a military college during the period of of the Confederacy. And so when the Union Army came through, they actually burned most of it. Did they really? I had no idea. They did. They burned the library, as a matter of fact. It's funny. There was one book. Of all the things, this is a random book. They burned the library, and I, my understanding is only one book was saved. It was a copy of the Koran of all things. Wild. Yeah. Somebody Wild. went in, and gra- and I don't know if it was rare. I don't actually know really the history of the book, but grabbed the book and, and got out. Oh, wow. Um, and, and so that book is now obviously in prominent display in the new library in the new library wow but a lot of it was burned there was there were cadets there who shot a union soldier who died and so supposedly where he was shot is haunted just Mm. all sorts of you know that whole thing and 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 battlefields and wars are always things that generate a lot of ghost stories and hauntings gettysburg supposedly the most haunted place in america and you and you see that i mean really you know we could spend a long time talking about why places are haunted why people think places are haunted But one of them, one of the things people think is sort of whenever there's sort of emotional trauma, there's (laughs) that's the kind of place you're going to find this. And you had a lot of that in Tuscaloosa. And we talked about some of the plantation homes and the people who lived there and the tragedies that affected their lives and and how those places were haunted and just tried to sort of get a cross section of all the different things going on in tuscaloosa i mean it is a turns out tuscaloosa is a pretty haunted place it's it's an interesting thing
1: about like ghosts and i, I didn't even really think about that but i'm you know thinking about a lot of the ghost stories that i've heard over times if you think about them like one thread that runs through a lot of them and i say this we as we collectively they're places where we've made mistakes or that we think we've made mistakes mm. And, you know, like that whole idea of you were thinking about uh, talking about Gettysburg. Well, a lot of that is, you know, the paranormal stuff centers around the the battle and the different mistakes that may have been made on a tactical level or the bigger part of it. You know, you mentioned the Confederate soldier or the Union soldier being shot by the cadets. or Wasn't there something also in the book, because I haven't finished it completely, but where there was a spot where Confederate soldiers still march. And, like, a lot of this stuff seems to connect to places like, you know, like the, the the stories about the woman who's still living in the attic of the house because her husband poisoned her and it was never solved unresolved mistakes, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think that's in the in the sort of theorizing about ghosts. I think that is a, a pretty powerful theory that sort of – you know the the it's it's kind of like the unrequited love thing right just the the notion of of some some great mistake or some great loss or some great missed opportunity a, a pivot point in in life somehow anchors to throughout time right like cuz that's the thing i mean some people what is a ghost is it is it the uh, the disembodied spirit of a human being that's what some people would say other people would say it's more like sort of leftover energy it's like residual energy kind of like if you you know if you heat up a, a a piece of steel and you take it off the stove and you let it sit and you touch it it's still going to be warm because it still has the residual energy of whatever it was that was happening before and that's what some people think and we always used to say to people go you know the the place that people don't tend to see ghosts are cemeteries because cemeteries actually nothing happens there Mm. (laughs) that's not that's not the place where in life things are happening you don't tend to end up at the cemetery until you're already dead right you know that it might be fun to go go out to a cemetery and scare yourself but really that's not where you would expect to see these kind of things it's
1: where things are resolved as opposed to unresolved
0: yeah like it's um
1: You know, I think about all these things like ghosts, the idea of even, you know, spirits or leftover energy or the life lessons we were talking about before related to horror. It's almost like the more we talk about this, the more I start to feel like, or even like something as simple as like life is boring without mysteries, but, or the pet cemetery life lessons that are being made. It's almost like we need these things. Like all of these things... You know, whether we're talking about helping children go to sleep at night or learning an important lesson in life that we can't necessarily take straight on or, you know, the places that we made mistakes, it's almost like we need these things to understand and process the world around us. Maybe I'm being too big about it, but...
0: No, I don't think you are at all. I I think that's why they have been with us since the beginning of time and will always be with us. And I think it's why no matter you find the most the person who thinks they're the most rational materialist in the world, they are still going to have these, even if they don't realize it, they're still going to have these things. They're going to be, you know, little suspicions that they have about what's what's really lurking in the darkness. Right. Or they're going to have superstitions that they follow, even if they don't realize it. Or there's going to be legends that live in their mind. This, I think it is the world going back to Lovecraft. You know, Lovecraft used to say that, you know, the the most merciful thing is that man's mind is unable to conceive the vastness of the universe. Because if you could, it would drive you insane. (laughs) Like, if you could conceive just how vast the universe is compared to us, you would not be able to function. And I think. We cannot actually function in life without having some of these things to help us conceptualize that vastness. Mm -hmm. I think it helps us to understand the world around us and to place ourselves in it. And, and I don't know how you could do that. If you can't, if you don't have something that helps you to do that, quantum physics is never going to do it. The more you learn about quantum physics, the more confused you're going to be. <laughs> quantum <laughs> physics isn't going to answer any questions. It's gonna, only going to make... Razors, Add more questions, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. The closer it gets to truth, the less you'll understand it. And that's, that's quantum physics for you. So if you want to try and order your life around the fact that, uh, you know, light can be a particle and a wave at the same time, Feel free, but but for most of us, we, we need these things to help us to understand so we can, we can get through our day-to-day lives. I think that's hundred percent true. And that's why it will always be with us no matter what.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's, it's that part, like to your point, it's that part where science cannot explain everything. It explains so much and, you know, regardless of whether you're spiritual or not, but certainly if you're spiritual or even if you're not, I think we have to all accept that there's things that we cannot explain with science or even rational thought. And there has to be a space for that and a space to understand, because no matter how logical or rational we think we are, that there's a part of us that's affected by that or that makes decisions based on that. And I feel like these stories are great ways to sort of explore that in a way that isn't completely unrestrained, that doesn't do what you were saying with Lovecraft causing all of our heads to explode because of, because of, yeah. What about in comparison sort of like for you, these things that are sort of, I suppose sometimes fantastical (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, mysteries or stories. What about that compared to sort of like the real life nightmares of true crime? What, what are the differences for you in terms of like exploring those or approaching those?
0: Well, I think sometimes horror helps us to process the real nightmares out there. And I think you, you see this in, in sort of unhealthy way with conspiracies and conspiracy theories I think it is kind of like we we're done with the vastness of the universe. It is terrifying. It is more terrifying to me to think about how absolutely depraved people can be to each other and the horrible things they can do to each other than to think there's, you know, some non-human monster out there. You know, if there's a non-human monster murdering young girls we can all band together and go hunt that monster down and kill it and now we have we have ended the we, we've done something wonderful together we've overcome a great difficulty and we've ended its scourge it will no, no longer trouble our community right unfortunately in the real world you can't do that because it's not just one monster it's many and they're people and they often hide in plain sight So I often think that horror helps us to sort of conceptualize that and deal with that, and experience the bad things that can happen in life from a safe vantage point. You know, watching watching horror on on your television screen and experiencing it that way is is much better than watching the news. Frankly, right? (laughs) The news to be far more terrifying. Than, than real life horror. And I, and I often say that to people. It, it always surprises me. We do these October episodes and, and they're really just true crime, but they've got like a, they'll have like a little hint of, of whatever. And people are like, Oh, I can't listen to that. That's scary. And I think to myself, God, that's so funny. I find them less scary. Yeah. I'm like, like okay, oh, we're talking about real terror. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, okay.
1: it, it's very funny because I feel the same way. I was, I've, listen to all of your October episodes so far and I'm like yeah no not as scary <laughs> as, as the September ones Brianna Maitland scared me a lot more than any of these I am um, but you know it's funny you say that said that part because I think of something like um, Stephen King's fictional Dairy maine and there are a number of his books where it appears in there I think it started with the it. But it's like transitioned into like a bunch of other ones, like Bag of Bones, and then there is a book, Dairy itself. But like many of those books have a thread of the whole community banding together to fight this monster, which is so different than I think the reality that that we sometimes face when there is a monster, that often the whole community is either not banding together or is almost impotent in comparison to those fictional versions. Where we're able to fight this monster that goes like the monster is almost infinitely more defeatable than the monsters in reality.
0: No, I, th- I think that's true. It's kind of like how, when you think about who were like the greatest presidents, you tend to think about presidents during wartime. So like Abraham Lincoln is a great president. You know how would Abraham Lincoln have been if there hadn't been a war and he'd had to deal with things like inflation and recessions and and unemployment? You know if those were the things he was focusing on, you know what I mean? Right, right. Things uh, that things that are much more difficult to get. It's when you have a common enemy, it's easy to get everybody together and, and I mean, easy. I don't want to <laughs> don't want easier to Lincoln did, right. but you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yeah, right. exactly. You know, it's easier to get everyone together to focus on the common enemy to put aside our differences. And, and to do that, and, and but then when you have the real issues, crime's a great example. You know mm. how do you how exactly do you deal with crime? And it's 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 an intractable problem in the United States. And it's like we just it's we swing the pendulum swings back and forth, right? Like we'll be we just gonna put everybody in jail. That's what we, that's what we'll do for a little <laughs> while. And they're like, no, we should really try and rehabilitate people which can work if you do it the right way, but not rehabilitation doesn't just mean letting all those people out of prison that you put in prison. Like you actually have to do something to get them to where they can function in society. Cause if all you do is let them out of prison, then guess what they're going to do. They're probably going to go commit crimes. And then at some point your pendulum is going to swing back to putting everybody back in prison. And we never, we just don't have a real good handle on how to deal with crime, how to address these problems, how to keep our community safe while at the same time, not over policing, not, you know, focusing on the one community to the exclusion of all others. I mean, all these like mm. difficult issues, much easier to band together and fight the evil clown monster. That's, that's eating children every 30 years. Right. Right. And so I think horror can be, it can be, and, and really all fiction, it can be, what's the word I'm looking for. It, we're striving toward it's aspirational, right? right. This is the way we want to be. We want to be able to do this. And in real life, it's much more difficult. But maybe if we can channel those sort of ideas and, and into things like community, I mean, we've got a lot of work to do. I feel like in our country, we, you know, we had our common enemy throughout the end of the 80s. We were always yeah, fighting the, 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 the godless communists and the Soviets and everything else. And for all the mistakes made throughout that period, there was something that at least united everybody which was that you could disagree about everything else, but at least we had that binding us together. And then the nineties were kind of like the roaring twenties. You're kind of like this period where, Oh, everything's great. Now we're just rich and Hey, it's the internet. And we're all just going to make tons of money on the stock market and all also their stuff. And then nine 11 happens. Right. And everything starts sort of fraying. Right. You know, we have that brief moment, I think you've talked about this, how like the day after 9 11, like 9 11 is the September worst. December 12th. Yeah. Best but then the day, day after 9 11, everybody's together because once again, we got the monster we're going to go fight. Right. Right. And that lasted for a little while, but not, not terribly long. And then the complications <laughs> of life began to interfere. And from that point forward, you've just had this sort of continuing fraying people, people separating the internet comes along and people are, it's so easy now just to put yourself in, in like a a small group and hate everybody else. Right. It was so easy to find other people who think just like you and, and think everybody else is a terrible person.
1: And we talk about
0: community, these communities breaking down and how, how exactly when you don't even have a community, how can the community come together? Right. So, so I feel like that's, that's a, a thing we have to, and I don't know how you do it, but rebuilding that sense of community so we can all march out together to fight the monster. That is the first thing we have to do. Yeah. And getting there is going to be the hard part. And it's not that we, we need to create a monster because there are
1: plenty of them that already exist. There are plenty. And yeah, I, you know, when you mentioned September 12th, It was a day that it's hard to even describe for me because I I came to work and this is when the New York Times building was on West 34th Street and you had these Times Globes that were in front of the building. And when the paper rolled out, it was the weirdest thing that you had people lined up in front of the building trying to get the early morning first editions of the paper uh, that were no longer printed in that building, but were brought to that 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 building in the morning. And the cab drivers weren't honking their horns that day; they were slowly letting people walk through the street. And when you describe that, I thought of like if you've ever read the book Under the Dome, which is one of King's that also touches on that Dairy Main community. But that's a day that felt like the day where everybody banded together to fight the monster. And that was an amazing moment. And if I could have repeated it hundreds and hundreds of times or had hundreds and hundreds of days like that over the last decade, it would have been like truly, I think it would have been truly amazing. It would have been transforming for us if we could have
0: kept what we had on that
1: that day in motion.
0: And the thing is, it wasn't a lie, you know? Yeah. I mean, the thing was, the thing about the monster is the monster clarifies how much the differences don't matter. It's not that they don't go away. You know, it's not like we stopped being Republicans or Democrats or we stopped believing in like, you know, trade policies or whatever, whatever the differences are that divide us. Those things didn't go away, but you recognized in the grand scheme of things, those are pretty minor compared to the fact that we are all in this together. We're part of this one community that's been attacked that has to respond that has to care for the people who've lost loved ones that in all the, all the important things about life were crystallized and we were able to see it on that day. Yeah. And you just, and you just, and I just feel like, and I see this so often and I saw it in the horror community and I see it in true crime where the people involved in those communities are all so different. I mean, they are, co- you talk about diverse communities, people from every walk of life, Every race, every gender, every educational background, every every political belief, every religion, and, and lack thereof, right? Vegans to people who only eat steak. I mean, everybody in between. And yet, they're able to come together in these communities and be friends with each other and talk about something they care about and you know, go to things like CrimeCon and meet up and have these great times. And the things that divide them don't matter. And I just feel like if we had more communities like that, some of this divisiveness that we see might be we might be able to overcome it right that's and that's why i love talking about this stuff with you because i feel like i never really thought about it until you started talking about it and now i'm like that is that is that is the thing you know that that we're missing yeah is is we're missing we're missing the things that used to tie us together because it's not like people in the 50s didn't disagree about stuff You know, (laughs) there was a lot,
1: there's a lot, there's a lot, lot. some
0: really intense stuff, right? I mean, there were bad things going on back then,
1: but gives us uh yeah, it gives us something that unites us. So before we wrap up, I want to give you a chance to have any closing thoughts, but what I really want, because this is Halloween, (laughs) I want movie recommendations too, for people for tonight. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends it, there are there are the movies that scare you, and there are movies that are the classics. I'll give you I'll give you sort of a wide range. So we've okay. already talked about Session nine. Session 9 is an underrated independent film, really amazing. It is going to scare you if you watch it. if you want to see a scary movie, Session 9 is one of those rare movies that will actually scare you. I One of my favorite movies ever, if you're on Halloween, and this is cliche, but nevertheless, it's just true, is the original Halloween. Like, if you haven't seen the original Halloween, do it tonight. Tonight is the time to watch it. And it's a movie where, and remind yourself, because sometimes this happens when you're watching and be like, I don't know, this seems kind of cliche. The reason there are parts of it that seem cliche is because it created the cliche. <laughs> <Like> the, things, <laughs> the things that maybe you've seen happen in other, other movies happen because of that one. And so that that one's great. My personal favorite horror movie of all time is the original Nightmare on Elm Street, which That's a great movie. And it taps into so many. We've been talking about still scares me. Yeah, it's still (laughs) scary. There's (laughs) just amazing scenes in that movie. If you want something a little different, the sort of a slow burn thing with just an amazing ending. Have you ever seen the others with Nicole Kidman?
1: No, no, no.
0: Okay, I'm not. I, don't Google it. Don't look into it. Just watch mm-hmm. it. Just don't watch it. others. Just watch it. Okay, it's, it's a great movie. Very sort of unsettling, creepy, and sort of a turn of the screw type. Yeah, type way. And then let's see. I'll give you. I'll give you one more, so we can do five. Okay, if you want more of a sort of a body horror type movie, if you haven't seen the original Hellraiser i think hellraiser is kind of kind of underrated obviously most people have heard of it but it doesn't get the same play as your friday the 13th Nightmare Running on elm street scream that kind of thing but the original hellraiser clive barker mind-blowing Perfect. so good but definitely definitely has got the body horror aspect yes, if you're into right. that kind of gory thing
1: <laughs> well this is great everyone's gonna have a great halloween it's scary, scary, scary Halloween. It's absolutely, you know, it's very funny. So a lot of people like Christmas, a lot of people like Thanksgiving or Easter. I love Halloween. And there's an interesting reason, I think, why. Like, you know, I've dealt with depression. And in October, that's where you run the risk because the seasons are changing for things to get worse. So I try to focus on the more positive things. And the one thing I think about every Halloween that keeps me going are all the smiling faces of children. So there you go. I thought I'd end on that note. (laughs) Remember always check your candy. (laughs) It'll it'll be just fine. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one, Brett. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook podcast. We'll see you all again next week.